Welcome back to the Falklands War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 12. The HMS Sheffield has just been sunk by an exocet days after the General Belgrano was sent to the depths by two torpedoes. This war was turning nastier by the minute and not helped by the media on both sides. British warships sunk by Argies, yelled the Sun headline. The Daily Star was a bit more direct. Its headline was merely, Sunk! The odd thing was that the Sheffield had not actually gone down by the time these stories were published. It would take three days for the Sheffield to eventually roll over, as you've heard, but there was no denying the palpable shock which ran through the British nation on the morning of the 5th of May 1982, the day after the Sheffield crew abandoned their ship. Many in Britain were calling for an immediate response. Bomb the mainland, said some. If you don't punish a bloke who picks your pocket, he'll steal your wallet next, said one man, interviewed by British TV. The mood in the war cabinet that day reflected these views, with John Knott, the most shaken of Margaret Thatcher's ministers. He told the House of Commons later that, It has been a dreadful event. But the first effect was to infuse the British diplomatic efforts with new energy, and Foreign Secretary Francis Pym was on the move once again. Just a few days earlier, He'd been waving his arms about, airily dismissing the peace initiatives in a condescending manner. Now he was shocked into diplomatic action. If the Argentinians could sink a destroyer with one shot, so to speak, they could sink others. But things were not that simple for the politicians. They tend to be a rabble on the average day, and when the pressure is on, they often degenerate into squabbling preschoolers. Not helping matters was the division in Thatcher's cabinet between the war group and the peace group. Admittedly, those on either side were not intractable. Some changed their point of view, but there were two real groups inside that cabinet. In the first, the war group, there was Thatcher, Knott and Cecil Parkinson, the Tory party chairman. They had a clear and less anxious view of the military option, while Foreign Secretary Francis Pym and Home Secretary William Whitelaw were part of the peace group. They both had very good reasons to avoid war if it could be helped, because unlike the others, both Whitelaw and Pym had been on active duty during World War II and knew what going to war really meant. For Thatcher and her warmongers, it was all about the political honour code, although that phrase is paradoxical in the extreme. For the men with experience, war was not a distant sound of the empire's boots and cannon. It was the screams of men without legs, dying in agony. Nothing particularly honourable about that, but of course, Thatcher had no idea what war really looked like. Perhaps politicians should all be thrown into a cage to fight once a year so that they hesitate before sending others to do their dirty work. Perhaps. While these two groups sparred verbally with some members agreeing with others, there was one division that remained consistent, and that was between Thatcher and Pym. Thatcher would not have given Pym the job in the first place. They never got on. While they sipped tea and stared at each other at these cabinet gatherings, they also circled each other in a state of mistrust. Pym had worried Thatcher because he wanted the peace missions to succeed when she wanted them to fail, saying they were a farce. There was one more push to find a peaceful settlement after the shock sinkings of the Sheffield and the Belgrano. One moment where cool heads may have gathered themselves, as Peru's President Fernando Bellodi Terry had intervened starting in April. It's a bit of a mystery why he offered to mediate. Dr. Bellondi was the first democratically elected leader of Peru after 12 years of military dictatorship, and now he urged a 72-hour truce. 
which was accepted by Argentina. It was to Buenos Aires' advantage. London ignored his offer. American Secretary of State Douglas Haig was consulted before the truce document was produced, which reinforced the rights of the inhabitants of the Falklands and the establishment of a conglomeration of countries to oversee any peace moves. The omission of sovereignty was a problem. Britain was unlikely to entertain this truce, but there was a chance. Francis Pym flew to Washington in May and was rather vague about Bologna's proposal. UN Secretary-General Javier Pérez de Cuea went to dinner with Pym at the New York residence of Britain's UN representative Anthony Parsons. At the foreign minister in Buenos Aires, the proposal was taken seriously. A senior official told British journalists after the war that the most tragic thing in this whole business was what happened to the Ballon de Proposal. I was in the room when Costa Mendes came in and said, we have an agreement, we can accept this. Everybody was excited. Then came the news of the sinking of the Belgrano. The proposal was dead from then on. Then on May 7th, and after the Sheffield had sunk to the bottom of the South Atlantic, Buenos Aires seemed to confirm the whole idea was finished. London didn't disagree. Pym naturally blamed the Argentinians for the failure of this round of talks. He said there could have been a ceasefire within 12 hours if it had not been for their intransigence. But Pym was fibbing. He knew neither side gave peace a chance. The British were now trying to keep the Falklands War far away from the UN Security Council, fearing that their sinking of the Belgrano would mean a new vote and less support. Thatcher and her war group wanted blood from now on, and blood it would be. They needed this war to bolster their political position inside Great Britain. Remarkably, Perez de Cuella continued trying to prompt peace moves as only he could. The Times published an article about how de Cuella prepared his dry martinis to explain his diplomacy. First, he places precisely two drops of vermouth into a frosty ice-cold glass, then puts the glass into a freezing compartment of the fridge to chill further next to his bottle of dried gin. Then remove and mix. No olive added, no lemon peel, no ice to dilute the potency of his martini. His method was meticulous, like his diplomacy. His predecessor, Kurt Waldheim, was a bit of a show-off, whereas de Cuella was all poet, music lover, bibliophile, an intellectual who believed in precisely the opposite to Voltheim. When de Cuella's name came up, along with other possible future UN Secretary-Generals, he was on the beach, without a telephone, while his peers were schmoozing in the corridors. He was elected because of his calm, no-nonsense manner, and the fact that he had no diplomatic debts to pay to anyone. When the Falklands War broke out, he purposefully distanced himself from both sides. Now that the HMS Sheffield had joined Belgrano underwater, the British War Cabinet stepped up diplomacy. Pym softened London's position, while the Tory backbenchers actually were puce with rage. In the next talks, he dropped the key phrase which Thatcher loved. That was that the islanders' views were paramount. On the 6th of May, Parsons went to see de Cuella with a clear British demand. The Argentinians must drop their claim that recognition of sovereignty was a precondition for talks. On May the 11th, that is precisely what Buenos Aires did. They dropped the demand for sovereignty, and de Cuella urged London to concede something in return. The British agreed that a UN administrator could run the Falklands instead of a British governor. By May 14th, de Cuella was cautiously optimistic. Parsons committed the discussions to paper and flew to London from New York to brief Thatcher. 
However, he was greeted at London Airport on May 15th by a barrage of questions from journalists, which he deflected like a scene from the Matrix movies. Then he drove to Chequers, the Prime Minister's country residence, for seven hours of talks. The peace process had hit last chance saloon. If they didn't get a deal done, said one, a lot of people were going to die. Thatcher's government agreed to a UN administrator, along with a vague timeline for the withdrawal of Argentinian troops. Everyone thought this was a great deal for both sides. However, Buenos Aires did not. London had guessed that the military junta was experiencing similar misgivings and would accept 90% of the proposal while giving Thatcher a difficult 10% to decide on. Instead, they gave nothing. At 11.15 on May the 18th, De Cuellar called Parsons to pick up the formal response from Argentina, and when he did, one glance at the UN Secretary-General told him it was a no. The Argentinians had retreated from their initial undertaking, and now sovereignty was back as their main demand. The diplomatic game was lost. Meanwhile, since the beginning of May, the SAS and Special Boat Service had not been idle. Parties from G Squadron SAS, as well as the Special Boat Service, began landing ashore on the Falklands from the 1st of May to assess the strength and condition of the Argentinian forces. The 4,000-ton nuclear submarines were massive, as big as Type 42 destroyers, and they drew too much water to move close inshore. The smaller O-class patrol subs did not reach the operational area until May 28th, after a month's passage. The SAS had initially proposed to insert patrols by high-altitude low-opening or high-low parachute drops, but these were rejected as too dangerous. Instead, they were going to be dropped by Sea King helicopters. And just before the Sea Kings left from Yeovilton in the UK, 846 Squadron had been offered a few sets of American Passive Night Goggles, or PNGs, and the pilots managed a few hours training in these. Luckily, it turned out, because the PNG-equipped Sea Kings could fly in total darkness with exceptional accuracy. On May the 1st, the choppers flew in at 20 feet above the sea and landed the reconnaissance parties on the Falkland coast, and the men plodded away in the dead of night and into the hills. They were burdened by large packs and had to find a lay-up position before first light. The six SBS teams concentrated around possible coastal landing sites, while eight four-man SAS patrols were deployed as well. Three of these on West Falklands, one around Darwin, one above Bluff Cove, and three around Port Stanley. The recon teams immediately realized that the bulk of Argentinian troops were based around Port Stanley itself. Contrary to popular mythology, the British gained no intelligence of any value from the Falklands population themselves. But now, the SAS and SBS teams lay motionless during the day, freezing, always wet meticulously camouflaged in the peat and tussock grass, watching the enemy go about their business. They jotted down details of trench positions, artillery points, logistics movements, number of soldiers deployed, their comings and their goings. It was apparent already that the Argentinians were suffering. They appeared indolent, hardly moving about on the tough Falkland landscape, and indifferent to their officers, it appeared. That intel arrived at Brigadier Julian Thompson's desk, who then told the naval staff shortly afterwards that a number of beaches were suitable for landing a brigade, but Thompson had to wait until all reconnaissance had been completed before deciding which beach was best, and no plan for amphibious landings could begin until Admiral Woodward's battle group was available to insert the Special Forces teams, and they weren't yet.
offshore, the war continued with a series of parries and blows. On the morning of the 9th of May, two Sea Harriers from HMS Hermes headed off to bomb Stanley Airfield and then abandoned the mission because of low cloud. As they flew back to the Hermes, they spotted a surface contact on their radar, and this turned out to be the Argentinian intelligence vessel posing as a fishing trawler called the Narwhal. You've heard about the ship already, and now its luck ran out. The Sea Harriers attacked using bombs and cannons. One bomb hit the deck but didn't explode because it was fused to be dropped from a much higher altitude. Two more Sea Harriers arrived, and they also attacked the ship with cannon, and it was crippled. Seaman Contra Maestro Omar Rip was killed, and a number of others injured. Shortly afterwards, a Sea King chopper flew over and let down a Royal Marine boarding party which took over the Narwhal. It was then that they discovered the Argentine naval officer on board along with a trove of documents which confirmed that it had been intelligence gathering. On the same day, Argentinian air units tried to bomb the destroyer HMS Coventry and the frigate HMS Broadsword, which were operating near Stanley. Their role was supposedly to bombard shore targets, but what they were really doing was enticing the Argentinian aircraft into a combination of Sea Dart and Sea Wolf missiles that these ships carried. The mainland air command responded and the 4th Fighter Group at San Julian sent 18 Skyhawks to attack the two ships, but most turned back because of bad weather. Four others continued onwards and really should have had second thoughts, because two were lost along with their pilots. They crashed in poor visibility. One hit the cliffs of a small island off the Falklands. A second ploughed into the sea. The turbulence was so bad. The other two just made it home by the skin of their teeth. Then an Argentinian Army Puma helicopter from Stanley, which had headed out to find what had happened to the Narwhal, was spotted by HMS Coventry and shot down by a Sea Dart missile. This was the first successful use of the weapon, and no trace was ever found of its three crew members. The pilot and co-pilot, Lieutenants Roberto Fiorito and Juan Buciazzo, were the first Argentine Army officers to be killed in the Falklands area. Things were going to get far worse the following night for the Argentinians. Rear Admiral Woodward had ordered the frigate HMS Alacrity to steam through the Falklands Sound, the passage between East and West Falklands. The plan was to pressurise the Argentine garrison and to prove that the British had naval superiority. What Woodward didn't know was that there were five Argentine supply ships in various parts of the Falklands Sound that night. They had been told to seek shelter there after sea harriers had bombarded the eastern reaches of Stanley in the first week of May. Three of these ships were the Bahia Buen Suceso, the Isla de los Estados, and the Rio Carcarana. We met the first two previously, if you remember. No, they were in real danger. Small local ships Forest and Monsinin were being used by the Argentinians as shuttle vessels to move provisions from the three larger ships to Stanley as well as other Argentine garrisons. So HMS Alacrity duly steamed into the sound from the south. It was about halfway through when her radar picked up a ship six miles ahead. She increased her speed to close the gap, then fired a star shell to try and identify the target. It was raining hard. When it appeared the vessel was trying to steam away, Alacrity fired 12 rounds of airburst as a warning. When the Eli de los Estados continued, Alacrity fired high explosive shells. No one on board the Alacrity could actually see the target. They were using radar to aim. They counted three flashes, hits, through the heavy rain. Then Alacrity left the Isla de los Estados and continued her dash up the sound heading for the North Gap. She had to be out of the area by dawn. Meanwhile, 
all hell had broken loose on the Eli Dalosh Estados. She was bringing army stores and fuel to the Falklands, but only weapons and the ammunition for B Battery of the 101st Aircraft Regiment had been unloaded. So left on board were vehicles and 325,000 litres of fuel for army helicopters and generators. The ship's officers were taken completely by surprise as Alacrity opened fire and thought it was the own artillery based at Port Howard, about seven miles away, that had mistakenly targeted them. One of the crew who survived was Lieutenant Commander Alwa Payarola, Naval Liaison Officer. We were hit on the starboard side 20 seconds after the shelling started, he said later. The ship developed a list and there was a big fire in the fuel, a large amount of which was in both holds. A massive explosion then destroyed the bridge, killing seven. Everything around me was gone. I only saw Captain Panigadi, who was on the floor until he stood up and came over to the starboard side of the bridge. The ship listed to over 30 degrees. Then another shell triggered a second giant explosion. The ship rolled over. The engines were still running and the Ila Dalosh Estados plunged bow first into the ocean like a diving whale. I jumped into the sea from the stern of the boat, into the wake from the propellers. I watched the ship slowly sinking, said Lieutenant Commander Payarola. He had leapt into the freezing winter waters of the South Atlantic without a life jacket in his underwear. He had a miraculous escape and swam to a tiny island offshore where he was found five days later along with a second seaman. How both survived in the near freezing conditions is a miracle. But 21 other men had died and the body of Captain Panagadi was discovered in the ocean later, and he was buried at Port Stanley Cemetery. And what happened to the Alacrity after she completed her passage of Falkland Sound and was met at the northern entrance by her sister ship Arrow is quite a story. They both turned east and headed off zigzagging hard, about five miles apart and making 30 knots. What they didn't know was that they were heading straight towards the Argentine submarine San Luis, which was lurking off the north shore of East Falklands. Commander Asqueta couldn't believe his luck. Acoustic conditions were great. His passive telemetry sonar detected the arrow first, then alacrity emerging from the sound. The submarine was ideally placed midway between the two ships, and Asqueta stopped the San Luis and allowed the British ships to come to him. He selected alacrity because the coast was behind the ship and it therefore had less room to manoeuvre. But he had a problem. His torpedo firing computer was not working, so he kept the submarine's bow turning slightly ahead of the Lacrity's path, ready to manually fire two AEG SST-4 torpedoes from the bow tubes. Then he had another problem. One torpedo refused to fire, while the second left its tube, but then its wire guide broke. It missed the Alacrity and detonated against the shore. Because Alacrity and Arrow were steaming at full speed and zigzagging, they couldn't use their sonar and underwater radar detection devices properly and had no idea that a torpedo had passed by, nor did they pick up the underwater blast. A lucky escape. Poor Commander Asqueta was at a loss. By now he had fired three torpedoes and two attacks on British ships and one at a suspected subcontact that actually turned out to be a whale. As you can imagine, these misfiring attacks had frustrated the Argentine submariners. Given what had happened only a few days before with the Belgrano sunk by a British submarine, the sub's performance illustrated to many the difference between the two navies in this war. The British 
were now preparing for their invasion. First, they had to soften up the islands still further. On the early afternoon of May 12th, HMS Glasgow and Brilliant had replaced Coventry and Broadsword off Stanley and were bombarding land positions, hoping to draw Argentine aircraft from the mainland so they could deploy their sea darts or sea wolf missiles, or both. Two flights of 5th Fighter Group at Rio Gallegos duly headed east, four Skyhawks in each, with all pilots flying their first war missions. The first formation attacked just before 2 p.m., timing their run from Fitzroy Settlement to where their land units had spotted the Glasgow and Brilliant. The ships were ready. Glasgow's dart system failed, but Brilliant Seawolves scored a spectacular success, destroying two of the Skyhawks and causing a third to crash. The fourth Skyhawk, piloted by the youngest pilot of all, missed the ships, but he flew home still breathing, unlike his three fellow aviators. A second formation of Skyhawks then swooped in, unaware of what had happened to their brothers. Captain Zelaya was leading. He missed his target. What I most clearly remember before the attack is that they started shooting when we were a few kilometers from the target. I didn't see any missiles, but I could hear the explosions of the anti-aircraft shells. All four made it out, with Lieutenant Gavazzi shouting, Viva la patria! I hit it! I am sure I hit it! He had hit the Glasgow, but his bomb had gone straight through the ship without exploding. Still, the damage was serious enough to put Glasgow out of action for the rest of the war. But tragedy was still to strike this flight. As they flew back, for some reason, First Lieutenant Gavazzi took a route near Goose Green, which was prohibited to Argentine aircraft, and he was spotted by the local anti-aircraft unit. They naturally presumed it was a British plane, as Gavazzi streaked in, the gunners opened fire with the 35mm anti-aircraft Olicon and shot down the Skyhawk. It plunged in a ball of flame, the pilot was killed, and the gunners ran over to examine the wreckage. Only then did they realize they had shot down one of their own planes. Some burst into tears. The Argentines had succeeded in damaging the Glasgow, but they had lost four of the eight aircraft and pilots involved. Two others from this mission would die later in the war. With the Sheffield in Davy Jones's locker, now Glasgow damaged, the British moved their ships further offshore once more. Captain Zelaya, by the way, was shaving the next day when he heard an Argentinian radio report that HMS Brilliant had been sunk, which he knew was a lie. He couldn't believe it. Then, the local Gacheta Argentina at Stanley published a report that the British had confirmed that Brilliant had been sunk and that aircraft carrier Hermes was damaged. The Argentine pilot knew both of these stories were lies and was shaking his head. Just to rub salt in the propaganda wound, Hermes and the destroyer Glamorgan left the main British task force on the night of 14th of May to drop more SAS men who were going to raid the airfield at Pebble Island Settlement on the north coast of West Auckland. Everything was building up to the British invasion which had been planned for the 20th and 21st of May. What happened next is for next episode. The music theme for this series is a composition by Kevin McLeod called Devastation and Revenge. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. It helps increase visibility. Or if you'd like to contact me, you can email me through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. <laughs>